Well, welcome everyone. It's time for us to go ahead and get started with lesson 19 of Master Plan for Life. It's page 179 in your notebooks. And I'll remind you where lesson 19 fits into the overall curriculum in a moment. Special welcome. They come, they come from miles away to come to Master Plan for Life. Kim's niece, Heather, is here from Germany because Kim's brother is a missionary in Germany. And Heather's formative years were spent in Germany. She lives there now. But she and her husband are here because her husband's on business, and she thought she would visit with some family while she's here. So staying with us for a few days. Welcome, Heather. And so as a result, my wife is in here, which is the only way I can get her into one of my classes, is to get someone to come from a foreign land. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So today, lesson 19, page 179, you see in the upper right-hand corner, it says the purpose of the church. So we're in the section on the doctrine of the church. And we'll be reminded in this lesson how central the church is to what God's doing in his world. But lesson 19 is part two of Master Plan for Life. So the notebooks that you guys have have both part one and parts one and two. Part one, we answered the question, who am I? So the 16 lessons that comprise part one. We're in five sections, Doctrine of God, Doctrine of the Bible, Doctrine of Humanity and Sin, Doctrine of Christ, Doctrine of Salvation. And all of those taken together give a full answer to that one question, who am I? And then a few weeks ago with Lesson 17, we transitioned to Part 2. Part 2 is seeking to answer the question, why am I here? What does God have us here to accomplish? And the reason Part 2 is devoted to the church is because in order to answer that question, who am I, or, or why am I here, that is, that is centered on the church. God has given His church to accomplish His purposes in His world, and so His people are to be a part of that, attached to that, actively involved in that, in order for us to answer the question, why am I here? So now, lesson number 19 is going to look at the local body, the local church. We saw in lesson 18 the body of Christ as the universal church. Everybody who belongs to Christ from whatever geographic location, whatever race, whatever ethnicity, they belong to Christ. Anybody that has come to Christ from the day of Pentecost until the future rapture when God takes His church, everyone in between, wherever they are, whoever they are, if they truly belong to Christ, they are part of the body of Christ. But those people that are part of that larger body are to gather in assemblies in local, local churches. And today's lesson is about that, the local expression of the body of Christ. So top of page 179, the body of Christ is a worldwide organism made up of all believers in this dispensation. So that's why I said it's all who belong to Christ from Pentecost to the rapture. They all then, who are truly saved, belong to His body, whatever location, race, ethnicity, and I would add whatever denomination. So it is a, it's a mistake for us to believe that there's any particular denomination that uh, holds entry into, into heaven or claim as God's people exclusively. And as much as our church is a Baptist church, and I believe the Baptists represent what the Bible says uh, on the important matters uh, most accurately, nevertheless, we have brothers and sisters from other denominations as well. As long as they've truly been born again and they belong to, to Christ, they're part of the body of Christ. It was established, was the body of Christ, top of page 179, 
for the purpose of bringing glory to God through the ministry of His Word. And this body is displayed through local assemblies. So sometimes you use the phrase for the body of Christ, capital B, everybody who is a believer anywhere in the world from Pentecost to rapture. Sometimes we use the, the term the invisible church because it's never visible, at least this side of heaven. You never have it gathered together. You never actually see it because you have people here and there. You have people from the past, people that are yet to come to Christ in the future. And so it's called the invisible church. But the, the, there's also the visible church. And the visible church is the gathered church. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about then the local church. Another term for the body of Christ, capital B, invisible church, is the universal church. So it is, as the name suggests, universal. Everybody who belongs to Christ is included in it. But that's as opposed to the visible expression in a particular location, a particular locale, and that's why we call it the local church. So you have a church like this located in Trenton, but you have churches all over God's world that are in particular locations. So you have the universal, but you have the, the local on location in a, particular, in a particular place. And the body of Christ, the invisible church, the universal church is displayed through these local assemblies. These assemblies are not an organism, but they are organizations, and they're designed to carry out the purpose of the body. So these organized bodies like this one and others replicated around the world uh, are the means through which God's mission is carried out. They carry out the purpose of the body. So it's not. The local church is not, as people sometimes say, maybe you've heard this, the, the, the church is where, wherever two or three are gathered together. You guys ever heard that? Uh, so that's a misunderstanding of a passage in your Bible that talks about wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst, Jesus said. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20, Matthew 18, 20. But that doesn't define a local church. As we're going to see as we go through this, to define a local church according to the Bible, you've got a whole bunch of organizational stuff that goes with it. So it's not just a couple of people gathered for, for Bible study or just gathered in Jesus' name for prayer or whatever it is, but that's kind of a common thing that, that people say. One of the reasons that we know it's not that, Matthew 18 and verse 20, is of course you always want to interpret any verse in its context. So what's the context of Matthew 18 20? If you think about it for a minute, you know of a, a famous passage and a famous topic that's addressed in Matthew 18. It's church discipline. And you may remember back in verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go to him. Just between the two of you, show him his fault. And if he hears you, then you've won your brother. But if he will not hear you, then take two or three others. Now notice the two or three. Because now just in a few verses later, it's going to be two or three again, where two or three are gathered together. But, what, but take two or three others, Jesus says. And then in that passage, Jesus gives a quotation. If you were to look at Matthew chapter 18, you would see that this next part is in quotation marks. Jesus says, so that every word might be established in the presence of two or three witnesses. And that's in quotation marks. So he's quoting from somewhere. Well, he's quoting in Matthew 18 from the first part of your Bible, Deuteronomy, fifth book in your, in your Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 19, Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15 
where, you may remember, Deuteronomy is part of the law. And, you know, Exodus especially, but then Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are giving the details of God's law, how life is to have happened in Israel and how it's to be regulated and what the penalties are and all of that. Well, you come to Deuteronomy chapter 19, it's talking about their judicial system. And in order for somebody to be convicted of a crime, it had to be in the presence of two or three witnesses. You couldn't have just one person come and say, hey, so-and-so did X, and then there, it's not enough. And notice, they had to be two or three witnesses. So I take that to mean they had to see it. They had to see it happen. So what this means is sometimes you will know that someone sinned, but it's only you who knows it. You, that person, and then God. And there's no other human being who saw it. And you might go to that person and you lovingly confront them with it, but they're unwilling to confess it. And then you just got to leave it at that. If you don't have the tour, if you don't have any witnesses to it, it can't go any further. So Jesus says, take two or three others so that every word might be established in the presence of two or three witnesses. And if they will not hear them, then tell it to the church. So notice this, the church and the two or three are not the same thing. Am I, am I right? <laughs> you just had the two or three, and then it was tell it to the church, so those are not the same thing. And then if they will not hear the church, then you have to treat them as if their profession of faith is invalid. Treat them as a publican or a tax collector, Jesus said. And then he gives this warning, verse 20. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. So it's a warning to say when this process is followed, and you have people who before me, before the Lord, follow this, and they are witnesses to what has happened. It's not just those two or three that you have to reckon with. More importantly, you have to reckon with me, says Jesus. So the two or three gathered together is not a definition of a, a church. Definition of a local church is uh, more involved than that, as we will see. Middle of that top paragraph, then. Of the 114 occurrences of the Greek word ekklesia, in your New Testament, 99 refers specifically to the local church. Isn't that something? I mean, so you want to talk about what God has an emphasis on. <laughs> uh, you've got 114 references, and you have a handful of them that refer to the universal body, the invisible church, the, the body of Christ, capital B, a relative handful. 99 refer to the visible expression in a particular location. Think about it. Think about your New Testament and how church-centric it is, church-centered it is. The letters of Paul, Paul wrote almost half of the letters in the New Testament, but to whom are they written? They're written to churches in particular locations, to the church at Corinth, at Thessalonica, the church at, the church at Rome, the church at, at Philippi. They're either written to churches or they're written to leaders of churches. They're written to Timothy the pastor in, in Ephesus, or they're written to Titus, who Paul left to appoint elders on the island of Crete. So they're either two churches or leaders of churches. Uh, the New Testament is centered upon the church. Uh, and it is a shame, then, that too many Christians can go their entire life and not see the absolute centrality of the church. They think it's kind of ancillary. They think it's a good thing. But it could be anything else. I mean, you could just have any other kind of organization. If you just got good people that get together and want to do good things, and you have a lot of people who believe that. So you have lots of what are called para-church 
organizations. Para meaning beside, beside the church. They're not churches, but they're run by Christian people, and they carry out good work. But nevertheless, forgive the grammar, ain't nothing as important in God's world as the local church, all right, as you go through your New Testament. And you see that, as I say, in the way the New Testament's laid out with the letters to churches, leaders of churches. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Paul writes to Pastor Timothy in Ephesus, and he says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing these things to you so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Well, whatever that thing is, it sounds really important to me. God's household, church of the living God, pillar and foundation of the truth. And Timothy, I'm writing, I, Paul, I'm writing these things to you so you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in that. God's household, church of the living God, pillar and foundation of the truth. What is that? Well, again, you put it in context and you go from chapter 2 Back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and he's talking about how worship is to happen when the, church, when the church gathers. And he talks about the role of women in worship in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Then you come to chapter 3, and it starts out with the qualifications of pastors in churches. Then it goes in verse 8 to deacons. And then in verse 13, it goes to deacons' wives. And then that brings you to the verse I quoted, verse 14. I'm writing all this stuff to you. I'm writing these things to you so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. So what is that? Is that the universal church? The universal church has no pastor. Did you know that? <laughs> I mean, Jesus, he's the chief shepherd, but in terms of a human pastor that meets qualifications from 1 Timothy 3, universal church has none of that. Doesn't have any deacons. Doesn't have any deacons wise. That's all about the local church. So the local church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. It's God's family, God's household. Apart from the organizational structure of the local church, the objectives of the body of Christ could not be accomplished. This lesson will focus on that organizational structure that includes, you see those five things, administrative responsibilities, leadership offices, specific ordinances, membership requirements, and a biblical focus. So first, the administrative responsibilities. The church of the first century is often viewed as being somehow unburdened by administrative details. This view is a myth that's been produced by two facts. One, the biblical account of the early church is presented as narrative rather than a how-to manual. And two, the events of several years are compressed into a few short verses. And the result of that compression is the illusion that things just happened. Now, when we say here that, number one, the biblical account of the early church is presented as narrative, that biblical account is in the book of Acts, the fifth book of your New Testament. And those 28 chapters are that. They are a narrative. They're, they are Luke, who wrote it, narrating what happened. And so he's just going through a history of the first few decades of the church. And this is how it started, and this is how it progressed, and this is what happened. But that's decades of material in 28 chapters. So on Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Acts. And we finally made it to um, chapter 8. The, so in our next sermon in two weeks... This week we have the Lord's table for the entirety. But then in two weeks we'll finally be to chapter 8, and we're finally getting outside of Jerusalem. And we're going to move to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. That's the way Luke's laid it out. But this is 
decades, many years of material compressed into this narrative to explain the story of the progress, the beginning and the pro progression of God's mission and, and church. So if you don't get that, if you just read that story, it just looks like stuff's just happening, man. It's just happening automatic. Nobody has to really think about it. It just, it just goes. So that's what we mean about that false impression that's given. And then, as we say, there are several, many years that are compressed into a relatively short number of verses. So when a guy like me comes along then and says, hey, let's do lesson number 19 in Master Plan for Life, and you know, you got this organization, and it's got administrative stuff and all that, people go, wait, wait, where are you getting that out of the New Testament? I read the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is just the Holy Spirit moving on people, and things just happen. Why can't you guys be spiritual enough to just let stuff happen? If you'll just pray about it, it'll, it'll just happen. I mean, that's the impression many people have. Now, I'm not, I'm not devaluing praying about anything, of course. But it doesn't just happen. It requires action. It is not passive. And being passive is not more spiritual. And yet many people think that. And I'm, a, I'm keenly aware of this because, as I said on Sunday morning, uh, I was raised Pentecostal. And uh, I was raised Pentecostal, and the idea was that the Spirit just moved and just did things. And you were kind of this passive, empty vessel, and the Holy Spirit just moved on you. And so the, the Holy Spirit would just cause you to jump up and, and talk. <laughs> speak in tongues or prophesy and you had no real control over this this is the Holy Spirit but, and it was considered to be the height of spirituality to just yield yourself to the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit just take control so I said Sunday morning it was in our second hour actually I talked about mysticism being a real problem for Christianity mysticism the idea that this, the work of the spirit bypasses the mind and so the work of the holy spirit goes directly to your spirit and you don't have to, there's no mediation of the mind in between there's no thinking about it in between it just happens lots of people think this even people who are not pentecostal pentecostalism you know the triumph of pentecostalism in our churches when you watch the way people worship because people sort of think they kind of got to do this. They don't know exactly how it's supposed to go, but you know, as they're singing, there's got to be a little bit of swaying going on. You're kind of getting in contact with the Spirit. I'm just making... <laughs> I mean, if you've ever seen Tim Hawkins do this, <laughs> the comedian Tim Hawkins, he's got, he's got this whole routine he does about different ways people do this. You know, some people got the hand out. He calls it the carry the TV <laughs> approach. He's got all kinds of these, right, to describe how people try to, try to get in touch you know, with the Spirit and, 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 have the, and have the Spirit move. But that's the idea. We've kind of been convinced that that's the way this goes. When in fact the way it's supposed to go is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 9, I think it's verse 9. I will sing with the Spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. And that's really important because Paul's writing in that chapter to people who had the mystical view, and he's saying, no, it's not like that. The Spirit does not bypass your mind, quite the contrary. And in verse 32, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 32, the spirit of the prophets is under the control of the prophets. He specifically says, you're not out of control. The spirit does not just grab you and make you do stuff. So if you have that idea, or if you know people who have that idea, one, you, you we should lose that idea. And then try to help your friends lose that idea. <laughs> that the less... Now hear this, the less planning, the more spiritual. That's, 
the way many people think of it. The more spontaneous, the more spiritual. That's the way people think of it. And so I, some of you have probably noticed, but for my prayer on Sunday mornings, I write out my prayer. And some people would say, we can't do that. I mean, where's, I, how's the Spirit working in you writing out a prayer? And then you go and, like, read your prayer. You know, what, you can't pray? Can't come up with something on your own? <laughs> well, I would just say, you know, isn't it possible that the Holy Spirit could have been working as I was writing that prayer? Right? It doesn't have to be in the moment. But that's the idea. That it's got to be spontaneous. And if it's spontaneous, it's more authentic, and that's not what the Bible teaches. All right. Then, middle of page 179. Administrative work has often been divided into three broad steps, planning, implementation, and evaluation, an acronym PIE, P-I-E, planning, implementation, evaluation. And by the way, that's a good acronym to use for pretty much anything you're trying to organize. Plan it, implement it, then evaluate how you did with it. A close look at the ministry of the early church reveals they engaged in all three of those. First, planning. Meetings were a necessary part of the ministry of first century churches. The book of Acts reveals administrative meetings were held on several occasions. You see the first one there, Acts chapter 6. So a couple of weeks ago in our series on the book of Acts, we were in Acts chapter 6. And so I mentioned this, and you may remember that I mentioned, look, I understand why people hate meetings, <laughs> because there are often too many of them. They are very often unproductive. And I've been in many a meeting in the business world over the years, I said on that Sunday, where I'm sitting in the meeting and I'm going, I think the only reason that this meeting was called is because the person who called it is lonely. They just want to see some people. There's no real productive reason for doing this. So I hate meetings like that too. You ought to hate meetings like that as well. But uh, to have productive meetings, to have meetings for the purpose of planning what we're going to do is necessary. They did it in Acts chapter 6 to solve the problem of service to widows. In Acts chapter 11, the question of accepting Gentiles into the church. Chapter 13, the commissioning of the first missionaries. Chapter 15, the question of the requirements to be placed on Gentile converts. So even though the Bible merely highlights the major events of the early years of the church, we should not conclude the church functioned without extensive administrative planning. The evidence in Acts shows the opposite. And it developed procedures to implement what it planned. The early church not only discussed things that needed to be done, but also determined how to accomplish or implement their plans. For example, when they met to address, in Acts chapter 6, the problem of service to the widows in the church, they solved the problem. They implemented something called the office of the deacon. And we saw that a couple of weeks ago in our, in our worship service as we looked at Acts chapter 6. And then thirdly, the early church engaged in evaluating what they did at the close, for example, of the first missionary journey where Paul and Barnabas went out and they visited a number of cities. That's why we call it the missionary journey. They go out, they visit cities, they preach the gospel, they plant churches. They then come back to the church at Antioch. The church at Antioch was the ones who sent them out to begin with in chapter 13. You get to the end of chapter 14 and now they return and they give a report on that so that it can be evaluated. Likewise, the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 was designed to further evaluate the information that was presented to the church at, at Antioch. And all of that is around the local church, again. You know, so I said the local church um, 
is what 1 Timothy 3.15 says, God's household, church of the living God, pillar and foundation of the truth. And I want to make sure you guys, we don't get out of this lesson on the local church without you understanding, being reminded that the local church started at the same time the Great Commission did. They started at exactly the same time, on exactly the same day. And many people don't get that, but they both started on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, the Great Commission started that Jesus gave before He ascended back to the Father. That day, the Great Commission started. And that day, the local church started as well, both of them, same time. And not only did they both start on the same day, they, all, they move forward together. You do not have the Great Commission apart from the local church, and you should never have a local church that's not pursuing the Great Commission. To put it another way, you should never have a missionless church or a churchless mission. They both go hand in hand in hand. So Jesus gave these final instructions in the Great Commission. He ascends back to the Father. He leaves it to His followers to carry out. And He's going to return and He's going to evaluate at the judgment seat of Christ how we did with that. That's heady stuff, isn't it? So it's important for us to be attached to the local church and for the local church to be actively carrying out the, the Great Commission. All right, so administrative responsibilities. Uh, the local church is an organizational structure with leader, excuse me, administrative responsibilities and now leadership offices. The Bible describes only two leadership offices for the local church, pastor and then we'll see in a minute, deacon. Now, some years ago, uh, I had a couple of, there were a couple of guys in our church, this is many years ago, and they, they said to me, hey, can we go get a cup of coffee? We want to talk to you about some ministry that we would like to do. And I said, yeah, sure. So we go to coffee. It's me and these other two guys who happen to be a father and, and son. And they start laying out to me that, you know, we just really have a burden for evangelism. We want to try to reach our neighbors in our particular neighborhood. And we're thinking we'd like to start a Bible study at our, at our house for that. And we will invite neighbors over and all that. And I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, yeah, beautiful, great. <laughs> uh, so I'm listening for what, you, what they need me for. What, what do they need me? What do they need the church for? If you guys wanted to start a Bible study in your house, on your block, and you wanted to invite people, you wouldn't have to ask my permission, right, for that. You just go ahead and do that, and that would be a, that would be a marvelous thing for you to do. So I'm listening, and I say, okay, so what can, what can I do? How can I? Well, we just wanted you to know. And I say, okay, all right, I'll, well, I'll pray. I'll pray that you know, people come to the Lord through this. So when's your, your first meeting? Well, we're, we're thinking um, in three weeks on uh, Sunday morning. I go, oh, wait a sec, Sunday morning. <laughs> I thought you guys had an appointment on Sunday morning. <laughs> I thought you guys were busy on Sunday morning. Maybe you've got another time you could do that. Well, it turns out the reason they needed me there is because what they're actually proposing is they're going to start a church in their house. Now, even that, you know, having a church in a house in the New Testament, churches met in houses often. So there's not a problem with having a church in a house. But you've got to understand what a church is. I don't care where it's meeting. That isn't the point. The question is, is it a church? Does it have these kinds of characteristics to it? And I go, oh, you guys are start talking about starting a church. <laughs> well, who's going to be the pastor? And they go, well, we'll lead it. And I go, that's not what I asked you. 
I'm not talking about somebody leading a Bible study. I'm talking about somebody who's the pastor because you know in the New Testament, pastors meet qualifications. And those qualifications are evaluated by the church. And those who meet those qualifications have hands laid on them. We call it ordination. I mean, that's actually a thing in the New Testament, ordination, laying on of hands. So you guys are going to do that? Are you asking me for our church to do that with you? Because that'll take a while. You've got to jump through some hoops, you know, for that. So no, the whole idea was for them to just go do their own thing, and they had this nebulous idea about what the, what the church was. They gave me a book. I, I, I always love it as pastor when somebody thinks, you know, pastor, if you just read this book, you would, you know. And I'm thinking, you know, I got this other book, and it's got 66 in it, and I read that one. So they gave me this book called Organic Church. <clears throat> And I start reading, and I'm reading, I'm reading. I get, to, I get to page 58 before a definition of the church is given. Now, you, you, write, you write a book on the church. You would think you would want to define that fairly early on. I get to page 58. Take a wild guess how uh, organic church defines the church. What is a church according to this, do you think? Larry's back there. Two or three gathered together. <laughs> that's, that's what a church is. Oh, no wonder these guys are messed up. And they hadn't taken master plan for life, clearly. Okay? And so they're, they're messed up on, on this thing, two or three gathered together. You go back, you know how Christian books have a scripture index at the back very often, or, and a topical index? Go back to the scripture index in organic church. Look for 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Why would I care about 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus on a book about the church? Because those are called the pastoral letters, the pastoral epistles. They're written by Paul to pastors, Timothy and Titus, about how the church goes. So if you're going to write a book on the church, you're going to be have, you should be fairly heavy on 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Guess how many references? That would be nada. Zero. The references are to things Jesus said, which are, of course, important, but here's the problem with writing a book on the church and it all being filled with stuff Jesus said. The church didn't exist when Jesus was walking the earth. The church started on the day of Pentecost. All right, I feel better. Let's, uh, let's move on here. <laughs> the office of pastor, and there are several titles for the same office given in the New Testament. Described with a variety of terms, each term emphasizes a different facet of the one office. So that's important right there. It's different facets, but one office. So these are not three different things, three different people. So you've got in the New Testament, the pastor uh, referred to by that term, shepherd or pastor. It refers to his responsibility to care for the spiritual needs of the congregation. He fulfills that primarily through the teaching of the Word of God. But he's also called the overseer or bishop so in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where the qualifications for pastors are given, also in Titus chapter 1, but in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says, He that desires the office of, and the NIV says, He that desires the office of an overseer. The King James says, He that desires the office of a bishop. So that's why we've got both of those there, overseer, bishop. They both come from the same Greek word. Here's the Greek word, episkopos. And so when you hear of an episcopalian church, the government, the church government of an Episcopalian church is focused on the overseer, the bishop. So it's a hierarchical church government. Uh, and so you have 
a, an episkopos, an overseer, a bishop at the top, and then you have others, un offices under that person. Now, the New Testament knows nothing about that. This episkopos, this bishop, this overseer, these are all interchangeable terms. They're the same as the pastor. Same office, not some hierarchy. And then you've got another term. Well, the, back to overseer. That title refers to the administrative oversight he's to exercise, set the agenda for the church's ministry, lead the church in accomplishing its objectives. Then you have elder or presbyter. So the Greek word translated elder in your New Testament is this Greek word presbyteros. So you get another kind of church government out of that, Presbyterian. So our Presbyterian friends are organized around a session, they call it a session, a group of, le of elders. And a church will have a group of elders. Our church has a plural elders in it. But in the Presbyterian church, you have a session that's outside the local church as well. So there are decisions made here that impact the local church, whereas in the New Testament, the local church is an independent body with uh, elders, elders within it. Now, I say that all three of these terms refer to the same office. You see that in Acts chapter 20. We have it for you on page 181. Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders. So there's the first term, the elders of the church in Ephesus. And he says this, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you episcopasis, <laughs> overseers, bishops. So that's the other term. Now, who are these overseers? They're the elders. So the elders are the overseers. And then he says, be shepherds. That is the word for pastor. Be pastors of the church of God. So you've got all three of them referring to the same people. You have that same phenomenon, exact same thing happening in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. You've got all three of the terms, pastor, overseer, and elder, all referring to the same person. So this idea that you've got this hierarchy and some are called bishops and then you've got some called pastors and you've got some called elders and they're different, none of that is, is, is the case. Just a couple of weeks ago, two weeks tomorrow, Kimmy and I had dinner with a couple that asked us to come over because the church that they've been at for years uh, has imploded. And it's the saddest thing in the world when a church implodes. And so they were looking for advice. And one of the things over which it imploded was the pastor was trying to figure out, the pastor who has been there for like 25 years, but he's trying to figure out how's the church supposed to be organized? This is not a good time to be figuring that out, <laughs> all right, after 25 years. But he's trying to figure it out, and he's trying to figure now, is there just the, is there just the one pastor, like me, and then there's everybody else? Or is there elders, plural? By the way, when elder is used in the New Testament, it is always plural. Every, every single time, it's always plural. The elders of the church. In Ephesus, it says Paul sent for the elders, plural, of the, of the church. So that's a, that's a clue that it's best, if possible, to have multiple leadership in, in a church. But nonetheless, he's trying to figure that out. And so he, for the last couple of years, he had had some younger guys this was promising. He had some younger guys that he was calling elders in training. But then he had a falling out. He had a disagreement with these guys. And he finally said, that's it. We're not doing any more of this you know, elders in training thing. 
and, and the guys were all confused, and they asked him, well, well, what is a pastor? What is an elder? And he said, the pastor runs everything. I'm giving it to you secondhand, obviously, what they told me. The pastor runs everything, and the elders are to support him and be his cheerleaders. They said that's the term he used, his cheerleaders. So in this guy's mind, you've got the pastor and you've got the elders. And you see, here's the problem. They're different. The pastor, and then you've got these support cheerleader people, the elders. When the Bible makes absolutely clear that there is no distinction between the pastor and the elders, they're the same people. That's why our elders, we've got four of us, and all have the same titles. Pastor Larry, Pastor Rich. Now, I called Dr. Klein. I never called him Pastor Combs because he was my teacher in seminary, so I, I just feel like I still have to say Dr. Combs. <laughs> Thank you for passing me through my classes. <laughs> but So he's one of our, our elders. But it's Pastor, and the truth of the matter is, and one of these days I just want to do this for kicks. Let's just have a month where we're called bishop. I just want to... <laughs> bishop Brown, I think it has a good ring to it, okay? All right, what are the qualifications? Middle of page 181. The qualifications for the pastor are clearly given in 1 Timothy, but also in Titus chapter 1. And these qualifications are both personal and professional. The, the personal qualifications are character qualities. The professional qualifications are skills. So the overseer or the bishop, the pastor, the elder, is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Now, all of those so far, these are character qualities, right? These are personal. Then you got this one, able to teach. That's a professional, that's a skill, able to teach. Not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. Now notice the parenthesis here. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? That's a second, the second of those professional skills. And that is management. Managing your own house so that you can manage the, the house of God. But all the rest of them, not a recent convert, so he doesn't become conceited and fall under the judgment of the devil, a good reputation with outsiders, so he's not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. All the rest of them, other than able to teach and management, are um, character qualities. They're all personal um, qualifications. So those are the qualifications. The responsibilities can be divided into three categories. Teach the, the Word of God. So in order to, to teach the Word of God, you know, you see that in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, as Paul tells Timothy what his, Timothy's responsibilities are to be. Uh, and I keep mentioning Titus chapter 1. If you were to go to Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Titus 1, 6 through 9, those four verses also have a list of the qualifications for a pastor, very similar to the ones in 1 Timothy 3. But one of the things that Paul says to Titus is that the pastor needs to be able to instruct, he needs to be able to teach, able to teach, but it also says he has to be able to, quote, refute those who oppose him. So that means that the pastor needs to know God's Word and he needs to know theology well enough so that you can protect the flock from false doctrine taking a foothold uh, within it. So that means, that, so sometimes people will say, well, why does, why does the pastor need to go to school? Why does he need to go to seminary, Bible college, whatever? 
And, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that tells you you've got to have a four-year degree, that you've got to have a master's degree, any of that. But you have to be adequately trained in order to be able to do that. And we live in a day where Satan uses, you know, all sorts of devices and is wily. And so uh, the pastor, the more he knows God's Word and theology, the better off the church will be. He's also responsible to, bottom of page 181, equip the congregation to minister. Christ gave pastors and teachers to do this, equip His people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So that is why, because that's the case, that we pastors are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We are so big on the idea that everybody in the church uses their gifts and abilities to serve the Lord. Because otherwise it becomes bottlenecked at a few hired hands to do the the work of the ministry. And actually you're failing in your responsibility if you don't enlist and equip other people to engage in in the work. Back years ago, our church, uh, you guys know, we, um, we met and rented facilities and we had to bring everything up, set it up, tear it down, carry it back out. Did that for 12 years. Uh, a f- couple of years into it, Ed and Sharon Martin, some of you know Ed and Sharon, they're actually Pastor Larry's in-laws, and they're wonderful people. But they were with us for the first couple of years, and then they did, moved to Florida. And they were in Florida for three and a half years. And then in God's good providence, they came back, which was a beautiful thing for us because they've served the Lord faithfully uh, at our church for all the years since. But uh, in the three and a half years they were gone, the church had grown. We had to implement some organizational stuff, and there there was a lot more going on than there was three and a half years earlier when they left. And Ed Martin, if you know Ed, Ed is a very detailed guy, one of the most detailed guys literally I've ever met in my life. He's he's an engineer by training. So when he comes back and he's looking to see what all's going on, like every Sunday he's saying, he's coming up to me and he's going, so what is that? And who's in charge of who's in charge of that? And I, or how does that work? And I go, I don't know. You got to go talk to that guy. And he kind of looks at me. <laughs> I go, you got to go talk to that guy. He's in charge of that. The next week he would say, so how does that thing work? I don't know. That guy's in charge of that. Go talk to him. And we do this for like two months. And I just keep sending them to other people. And he goes, so you don't really know how anything works here, do you? <laughs> And in a sense, that's tr- that was true in a sense. I did have some idea, obviously. But I don't have my finger in all of that because we've equipped other people. You get, you get the idea, right? Okay. Office of, at the top of page 182, the third thing is we're responsible to govern the congregation. You see 1 Timothy 5.17 there, the elders direct the affairs of the church. And then there's the office of the deacon. The word deacon means servant. Qualifications are very similar to those provided for the pastor, also given in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In fact, they're almost identical in terms of the the personal character qualities. The things that are missing are the two professional ones. It doesn't say, with regard to the deacon, apt to able to teach and uh, and management. So what are the responsibilities? Bottom of page 182, the Bible does not clearly spell out the responsibilities. His responsibilities are understood from the title namely that you are a servant and the example of the deacons. In Acts 6, they were selected to serve, to minister to. Minister and serve are the same word in the New Testament in order to free the pastoral staff to accomplish the ministry of of prayer and the word. Now, I would just add real very quickly that I said in our sermon two weeks ago from the book of Acts that it's my understanding that that the office of the deacon does involve a measure of leadership 
under the elders. It's not the same as the elders, but it does involve a measure of leadership. I say that because they're mentioned with the elders. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, it says the, uh, Paul to the saints at Philippi, uh, uh, no, Paul to the pastors and deacons and the saints at Philippi, pastors and deacons. Why are the deacons mentioned with the, the pastors? I think it's because they're in a leadership position. And so that's the way we treat our, our deacons here. All right, thirdly, the local church is an organizational structure with specific ordinances. What is an ordinance? Well, it's first of all not a sacrament. The so-called sacraments are intended to provide or convey grace. If grace was, grace was linked to any work or ritual, it couldn't truly be called grace. So if you, have, if you call baptism a sacrament and that, and that grace is given because you are baptized, because you do this work, then that makes grace then connected with uh, a necessary work. An ordinance is instead a symbol. When the Lord Jesus gave the ordinances to His church, He intended to them to serve as reminders of spiritual truths that they portray. So we're Sunday, this Sunday, the entire worship hour is going to be devoted to the observance of the Lord's table, communion, and that is a symbol that represents the death of Christ. And Jesus said, and do this as often as you do it uh, in remembrance of me uh, and, and until I come again. And you, you, until I come again, you will show forth the Lord's death, show forth my death. And so it's a symbol showing, portraying the, the breaking of the body of Christ and the shedding of His blood for us. So that's what an ordinance is. <clears throat> and the two ordinances are baptism and the Lord's table. The mode of baptism is immersion. And the reason it's immersion is because that's literally what the word means. You guys have heard me say this. Um, so everybody here has been, has been immersed. But when we, when we teach on this in our newcomer's orientation, and I get to that fourth and final week, and I say, okay, that's what our church is about. That's what we believe. That's why we do stuff the way we do. So if you want to become a member of our church, here are the qualifications. You have to be a, a believer. You have to have a credible testimony of, of salvation. You have to be supportive of our doctrinal statement. And you have to be, it says in the book, it says you have to be baptized by immersion. And then I always say, baptized by immersion is redundant. Because <laughs> baptism is immersion. The word means immerse. So if the translators in the King James in the 17th century, in the 1600s, if they would have translated baptizo, the Greek word baptizo, by translating it, for what it means, namely immerse, then we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have all the problems we have with people understanding what baptism is. But they didn't translate it, they transliterated it. Transliterate just says take the, you know, the sound of each of the Greek letters and put it into English, so baptizo is baptized. And so we got baptized, but now you still got to figure out what it means. But it means immerse. And the purpose is to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that's why we put you, you, know, we put you under... Uh, the water, and then you come back up as a symbol of death, burial, and resurrection. There's the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. It's a reminder of the cross work of Christ, and it's a time of self-examination. It's a time for us to confess our sin as we come to something that represents the sacrifice for our sin. Now, who is able to do the ordinances? Uh, the ordinances are given to the local church. So, Sometimes you'll hear you know, somebody that said, you know, my uncle baptized me in the river. 
just because my uncle was, you know, a great guy, and he, and he used to pray for me, and I love him, and it's an honor for me to be baptized by my uncle. Uh, now, I don't know if you guys know this, but there's nothing in the Bible that says the pastor has to do the baptizing. So we could, at our church, we could, the church could vote to authorize other people to engage in, in the baptism. We could do that. But it would require a vote of the church. The church has to. It's the church's ordinance. Christ gave it to the church. So the church would have to do that. The only reason I'm the guy who does it is because the church told me to. And I've done it before. And you kind of want somebody who knows how to do it. <laughs> but it doesn't have to be. The church could delegate, could authorize somebody else to, to, to do that. So that's what we mean by the authority of the the ordinance. Fourthly, the local church is an organizational structure with membership requirements. Modern culture increasingly emphasizes independence and it de-emphasizes commitment. As a result, it's becoming stylish to deny the necessity of church membership by claiming that it's not taught in the New Testament. But there's clear indication that the early church believed in the importance of an organized church membership. The book of Acts speaks of believers being added. Even more clearly, there are examples of being removed. And so the question is, how can you be removed, right, <laughs> if you weren't first part of? So there had to have been some way to indicate, I'm part of this church. Now, here's where people get off on this, where they say, you know, you don't find church membership in the New Testament. You find church membership in the New Testament. What you don't find in the New Testament and where people get off are some of the methods we use to indicate uh, church membership, like signing, filling out an application. Like our church has a one-page application for you to fill out for membership. And you tell us who you believe about who Jesus is and what has Jesus done for us and what is your testimony. And we ask you, does he have authority over your life for the rest of your life? And, you know, that kind of thing. You fill that out and then we meet with you. That's a process that we came up with to make sure you got a credible testimony of salvation. There's nothing in the Bible that says you need to have a one-page application. It needs to have the logo of the church up at the top. <laughs> you know, you don't have that. This is us putting together a process to carry out what the Bible does teach. And so what people do is they say, where did you find that in the Bible? I'm not making any claim that we find that method in the Bible. Now, why wouldn't you find some indication like people had to fill out an application or something in the New Testament? Here's why. Because in the first century church, the way everybody became a member of the church was through baptism. When, when people are baptized for the first, when people are baptized here, we make it clear to them when you get baptized, that is joining the church. That's the way it was in the first century church. The reason now we've had to add stuff like an application and all of that is because we have something in our day that they didn't have in the first century, namely multiple churches. When you went into one town back in the first century church, you know how many churches there were? <laughs> Generally one. It was the only game in town. When you got baptized, you were, you were a member of that church. That was it. So there wasn't anything to fill out. There wasn't an aisle to walk. There wasn't anything. Raise your hand. You got baptized. You were, in that, you were in that church. Even if there were multiple churches planted in a given town, you weren't going to be going from the one to the other because you couldn't get there. So these two things about today versus then, we have a multiplicity of churches and we have the mobility to get to them. And so that necessitates that we say, okay, who are you? Have you been baptized? Do you have a credible testimony of faith? And we need some way of getting that. I don't frankly care what method you use. 
for that as long as you do it because that's what the Bible says. So when people object to membership, a lot of times they're not objecting to the concept of membership. They're objecting to the process you use because they don't see that in the New Testament. The concept of membership is thoroughly biblical. The processes we use are extra biblical. You know what I'm, when I say extra biblical, I just mean it's outside the Bible. Extra biblical, but not unbiblical, but consistent with what the Bible's telling us we have to carry out. All right, so bottom of page 184, people were added, people were removed. And here's the New Testament portrait of a member of the local church. They have to be saved. They have to be a Christian. Church membership is a conscious and informed decision that necessarily follows a response to the gospel. This was the New Testament pattern from the very beginning. That day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, very first church in Jerusalem, the Lord added to their number daily who? Who gets added to the number? The people who are professing faith in Christ, the people who are, are saved. As a result of that, top of page 185, these principles should be observed. Church membership is not an option for the genuine believer, but it also cannot be imposed. So God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. So you are a directly a child, a son or daughter of God, or not. But God doesn't have any grandchildren, meaning you can't have your parents go to bat for you. <laughs> so your parents, or no, nor anybody else, can come and present you and say, now this person is going to be in the covenant community, this person is going to be related to God by virtue of the fact that I'm bringing them here. That's not the deal. God has no grandchildren. So it can't be imposed, that's what we mean. You have to make a conscious decision to trust Christ as, as Savior. And if you are a Christian, then it's not optional. All of those who were saved on the day of Pentecost were added to their number. So you become a member of the church at, uh, when you become a believer. And if you have to, in, in Jerusalem, there was only one church to become a member of. Since it's a believer's decision, infant baptism cannot make a child a member of a church. Also have to be baptized. The day of Pentecost, 3,000 responded with faith to the message that Peter preached. All 3,000 were subsequently baptized. <clears throat> Church members are to be, from that point on, growing spiritually. And you see that again in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Just very quickly there. Um, part of the fellowship, when it says, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, the breaking of bread and prayer is the way that they fellowshiped. That's what it's saying. So that was the apostles' doctrine and the fellowship. The fellowship looked like together breaking bread, having meals in each other's homes, and also taking the Lord's table together and praying together. So they were committed to learning doctrine, to unity, to purity, that breaking of bread when it is the Lord's table. Remember, a person is to examine themselves. That's why we say purity here. And if someone were to have been excommunicated from a church, church discipline, then think about that word, communion. Communion means unity. We have unity in our faith in Christ. If somebody has been excommunicated, it's the same word. It means they've been removed from the communion. So when the church gathers for communion, somebody who's been excommunicated is not to participate in it. And so that, too, is an act of, of purity uh, because only those who are in right standing with the Lord are allowed to participate. And they were committed to, to prayer. 
Membership in a local church provides accountability in the pursuit of spiritual growth. And then fourthly and finally, church members serve in the ministry of the church. It was noted above that one of the responsibilities of the pastor is to equip the congregation for the work of the ministry. This means that ministry is not the work of a few professionals, but the responsibility of, of every believer. Top of page 186. Lastly, it's an organizational structure with biblical focus. <coughs> Local churches are engaged in a great variety of activities. <coughs> Excuse me. Some are appropriate, some are not. What principles can be applied to help identify appropriate activities for the church? An understanding of why the church exists, what its objectives are, will help it determine what it should do. That is, how it will minister. So it's good for churches to you know, step back and, and think about that. Now, have you ever thought about it? Have you ever thought about what all should a church do? I mean, I've had to think about that because you often have people who have good ideas to do good things. I mean, you think about it. If you've got 400 people, how many ideas can you have <laughs> for what all you could do? And so I regularly get emails and I, in the hallway, somebody say, hey, have you ever thought about, you know, I saw some church who did X and it's a good, and it, most of the time they are good things. They're not bad things. They're not, certainly not evil things. But then we, the leadership, we have to think about, okay, that there are literally an unlimited number of good things that we could do. So how do you choose the ones you're going to do and the ones you don't do? And add to that, that though Ronald Reagan was not a pastor, he had this great pastoral principle. <laughs> he said, government programs are the closest thing you will get to in this life to eternal, eternal life. <laughs> that government programs have a life of their own. They go on forever. And I've said it this way. I've said, church, you can start church programs, but you can never end them. So therefore, be really careful about the ones you start. Because once you start them, you're stuck with them. And I have seen many a church that has started a thing and started a thing, started another thing, and started a thing, and all these things kind of glom on. I'm thinking of a church right now, and a good church overall, but they just got too much stuff going. And they don't know what the center is. What are we supposed to be about? And that's why we have that spiritual growth chart that you guys have seen. We have it on page 17 of our Newcomer's Orientation Manual. And I make sure to stick it up in front of people I did on February the 13th for our State of the Church Address to remind everybody these are our core ministries because you have core ministries. Now you can have other ancillary, supportive kinds of stuff, but never lose sight of the fact that these are our core ministries that carry out. The rest of that stuff is all good, and it could fall away. These things can't fall away because they're core. All right. And they fit into these categories. The local church should focus on the objectives of the Great Commission. Back in Lesson 18, it described the objectives of the local church as presented in the Great Commission as evangelism, the salvation of the lost, edification, the ongoing spiritual growth of believers, and then the spread of the gospel expansion. Now, how do you get that in the Great Commission? Remember what Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, and He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's evangelism, everybody agree? To, to make disciples. They have to have heard the gospel, respond to the gospel. They then become a follower of Jesus. You baptize them. You initiate them into the church and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded, commanded you. 
So that's the edification, the teaching them, building, building them up. The expansion part is that Jesus said as part of the Great Commission, you will be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. So his work is to expand through his church beyond our local walls outside and to other parts of, of the world. That's what the Great Commission is and our key ministries have to focus on that. The local church must finally focus on the purpose of the body of Christ. We saw in Lesson 18, the purpose is to glorify God through the ministry of the Word and understanding and application of that will focus the activities of the church in that all will display the character of God. Now, why would the purpose of glorifying God necessitate displaying the character of God? Because that's what glorify God means. To glorify God means to display His character. And we glorify God, we display His character through the ministry of the Word because God's character is revealed in the Word. So we teach people what God is like and we conform our lives to it. Glorify means to demonstrate or make known His character. When this purpose is consciously pursued, the methods of church ministry will be evaluated in light of God's holy character. Is the way we're doing this a reflection of the character of God? Man, if our churches would ask that question, we would eliminate a lot of nonsense that goes on in our churches. All right. It is 8.16. I am one minute over. Please forgive me. Did we get it all recorded? Yay for us. All right. Thanks, guys.